You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Real Vision Daily Briefing, Friday edition. Welcome back, everybody. Live without a net with Ed Harrison and Jack Farley. Welcome back, guys. Good to talk to you. Great to be here, Ash. Always great to have the old band back together again. Um, we were talking a little bit off air. Lots going on. Uh, let's start with you, Ed. What are you looking at these days? You know, we had a lot of uh, numbers that came out today. Uh, I was looking at the market numbers in particular. Uh, that's the company that does the PMIs. And those were really good. Uh, you look at the composite PMI, 62.2 versus the previous month in March, 59.7. Obviously, 50 is the dividing line between uh, when you have expansion and contraction. A number like 62 is pretty high. Well, if you get above 60, that's considered a really robust economy. And then if you break it down into the uh, component parts, look at services. The services sector, PMI, was 63.1. They only expected 61.9, and the previous month was 64. So still going up, but more than expected. And then finally, look at manufacturing. Previous month was 59.1. They expected 60.5, and we got 60.6. So you put all that together, and what it says is both the manufacturing and the services sector in the United States are expanding, and they're expanding at a more rapid rate than anticipated. And that has uh, GDP now from the Atlanta Fed up 8% for Q1, and it looks like Q2 is continuing in that same bullish fashion. Yeah, we should say, uh, in the spirit of covering the day's stories here, now that we're live, uh, U.S. equity markets smiling on this news. Uh, S&P 500 up one spot, 0.9% on the day to settle at 41.80. NASDAQ up almost 1.5%, uh, closing at 14.16.81. Russell 2000 up one spot, 7.8% to close at 22.71. So the question is, is what, what are we supposed to make of this? You know, this is a good opportunity to throw it to Jack Farley because, I mean, I read David Rosenberg as an example. We're going to be talking to him in uh, next week, I think. And he's like, yeah, 100 uh, percent. We, we're seeing uh, uh, upticks. But really, you know, you got to look at the macro picture, the big picture, and ask yourself what happens after this initial burst of energy? Uh, what does the economy look like after uh, people uh, return to a new normal? Is it a, a robust economy or is it like the economy that we left? two or three years ago, uh, which was sort of secular stagnation. And that's the, that's the real you know, $64,000 question. Yeah, uh, Ed, so you mentioned that the composite PMI in the US was good. What I had my eye on was that the services PMI showed particular strength, uh, 63.1 relative to 61.5, as you mentioned. So I think the fact that the services are really recovering is important because as both of you know, it was the service sector that was hit hardest by COVID and, and the corresponding lockdowns. 
Also on the topic of PMIs, I believe Europe posted some very strong numbers from the UK, Germany, and France. So it seems that uh, the recovery uh, remains in, in good stead in the US and in Europe. Yeah. I guess I always wonder uh, these days in the, in the wake of this recovery, uh, what exactly are we measuring here? And what does it say? What does it mean? And why uh, does it matter if it matters? So Commerce Department report out today, uh, new home sales surged. Uh, so up 21% month over month. This is on a quanta or count basis, not on a price basis. It's numbers of, of new homes sold. Uh, it's up 66.8%. That's roughly two thirds, almost exactly two thirds, I should say, uh, year over year. But what are we measuring here? We're looking at dramatic low base effects, right? You see this just absolute carnage uh, that happened 24 months ago. Uh, and the chart that I keep coming back to, I know we're live here today, it's uh, not easy to pull charts up, so I'll just describe it for you. Uh, but really, if you think about the real economy, and I'm curious to hear what Ed thinks about this, I'm curious to hear what Jack thinks about this. I've been zoomed out uh, just trying to think about the big picture. Uh, and look, look at all employees, non-farm payrolls. This is the Pay M's series, Pay uh, M series at the uh, FRED, the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis database. And it goes like this. It goes up for, you know, 50 years, incredibly sharp decline, right? That's the, the carnage that we experienced uh, around the time that the virus broke here in the United States in March. And then the V-shaped recovery, but inverse radical. It stops, it goes up, and then there's an acceleration of the rate at which it's going up. That's a good sign, certainly, to see more hiring, uh, but significantly, significantly below the numbers uh, that we were at at the beginning of the crisis. And needless to say, also way, way, way below trend, meaning where we would have been if that line had continued to get sketched up. Ed, what are your thoughts on the big picture, how you process the data that's come out today, how you frame the micro in context with the macro? You know, the first person that comes to mind when you say that is Daniel LaCalle, who I've interviewed twice recently, and his view had been last year, and again, it was this year when I spoke to him, that the U.S. would outperform relative to Europe. So even though that picture that you presented is somewhat worrying, I think the first thing I think about is the PMIs that came out of Europe. Uh, if you look at the PMIs uh, for Europe, uh, you know, they were all above expectations and the numbers were above the previous month's numbers, just like in the U.S. But if you look at the numbers, they're not anywhere near as robust. You know, so when you talk about the base effect, yes, uh, the manufacturing PMI for April in Europe was 63, but the composite was 53.7. The services PMI in Europe was 50.3. That tells you that Europe is delayed relative to the United States. Obviously, lockdowns have a lot to do with that, but it tells you that the United States is really moving forward in a fast way. And the question is, is can we continue that? So that's my macro picture. Uh, can we continue? Is it priced into the market? Um, I think that it's a compelling point from Daniel's perspective that right. uh, it gives you reason to continue to pay more of a market multiple for the United States over Europe because you're getting more growth for those shares. Yeah, such an important point. Um, you know, obviously, as you're doing what you always do, Ed, which is adding yet another dimension to it, multiple time horizons, but also the comparative question uh, about the performance of the U.S. economy relative to the rest of the world and where investors are going to find that return. Jack, over to you. What are your thoughts uh, about that 
precise point and uh, Ed's perspective, as well as the blending of the macro and the micro, processing the numbers that come out today in relationship to the bigger picture. Well, Ash, I'll quickly explain a phenomenon that you and Ed mentioned, which is base effects. And the, the simple fact of the matter is, is that most economic data, as well as a lot of financial data, is measured over on a year-over-year -year change basis. And we're at the point now where if you compare current data to a year ago, you're going to get things that are very distorted. Because so, for example, a little over a year ago, um, or actually, you know, about a year ago, oil was negative. So are you going to look at the year-over-year -year change of oil? It, you know, it makes no sense. So, so that's um, what we're seeing in terms of inflation. There's like a deflationary spiral that was occurring uh, last March, last April. So comparing year-over-year -year changes to the consumer price index doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But one thing that I've got my on, Ash, is lumber, which is a key input in tons of infrastructure, uh, which is obviously on the topic, but specifically housing. And right. um, you know, as housing has surged for a variety of secular as well as perhaps cyclical reasons, such as people leaving the big cities because they're getting taxed to death, uh, perhaps we'll get onto that. I know yeah. uh, Ed's got some thoughts on that. But um, you know, as, as people are bidding to to buy all these houses, um, you know, the price of housing goes up, so therefore people are trying to build homes. So therefore, people want to buy a lot more lumber. Lumber being treated wood, not timber, which is basically a tree that was just cut down. So. Uh, in, in 2016, 2017, the price of front month futures lumbers was well below $400. It's currently at $1,372, or almost $1,000 higher. Um, and that is actually the front month futures, which is a financial contract. In terms of the spot price, if you look at the US Lumber Oriented Strand Board, or OSB composite, uh, which is a monthly index which measures the price of OSB, it was at 999 for the month of March. I was just reading a report today that said uh, that from an exchange that said that they just closed a contract that was at $1,500 for spot lumber. So you could see the price going a lot, lot higher. So this this trend is continuing. And you know, looking at this chart, um, Ash, it just reminds me of uh, an exponential trend that is uh, perhaps not mean reverting, at least for now. Hey, Jack. Right. Speaking of the point about uh, people leaving New York City, a report today at, on the back of this. Uh, Commerce Department report that shows this blowout number uh, in new housing sales. Uh, meanwhile, New York City rents down to new lows on the cycle per report out by Street Easy. So folks leaving New York City. So, so you know, uh, you spoke, by the way, Ash, to your friend James Altucher. Uh, in retrospect, now that you have a chance to look back at that, the death of cities, uh, what's, your, what's your take? I mean, look, I guess you could say it's still pretty early. Uh, in the game here, you know, obviously you have this mass exodus. New York City has not been the most fun place uh, to be during the pandemic, uh, not because of the gloom and doomsayers who say, you know, that uh, that it's basically the warriors out there. That's not the case. Uh, obviously, we've seen some upticks in crime, but the real challenge with being in New York is all the things that make New York great uh, aren't happening right now. Obviously, you're not going to Broadway shows. Uh, you're not going out to pack nightclubs. There are a lot of great things about the city uh, that are not uh, that are not happening. And also, if you've got to ride out a, a, a pandemic at home, you probably don't want to do it in a 480 square foot studio apartment. You probably would prefer to do it out in the suburbs with a car and you can you know, jump in and go out to the park and play Frisbee and enjoy your life. Uh, New York City is not a great place to be during the pandemic. So I think it's probably a little bit too soon to say uh, how the city is going to come back or not come back as the case may be. Uh, but we're going to have to uh, we're going to have to keep a very close eye on it. And uh, I'm, of course, going to be keeping a close eye on it because I'm here.
And, and yeah. where do you lean of thinking? Is it going to come back? Is is the is the death of cities a, a legitimate uh, likelihood, or are you, or do you lean towards the optimistic? Well, I don't know. Look, we've had a we've had a trend. Uh, what is it like the two hundred and fifty year trend of urbanization uh, in the United States? Obviously, some some ticks uh, up and down on that, but. Uh, Obviously, the secular trend is toward uh, people, especially younger people, want to be in big cities, want to be in densely populated areas. We're going to have to see. And there's also the question about the individual cities themselves, uh, specifically mismanagement uh, and uh, and taxation, uh, as Jack points out. I'll tell you a story that I've heard. Now, I can't confirm this. I don't know it firsthand. I've only heard it. But apparently, New York City dating apps, the fish are biting. Guys and gals, both swiping furiously. I have friends telling me that they're getting more hits on their dating apps than ever before. So I don't know if that's a function of uh, vaccination and, uh, you know, the weather starting to uh, hopefully look up here in the city. But look, people want to be, especially younger, single people, urban professionals want to be in places where there are other people they can hang out with. So we'll have to see. But I do have to say, and maybe this is the, maybe this is the tie here uh, to bring us into the story that Jack was alluding to, uh, which is, uh, which is taxation. Some of these numbers are coming out. I know you've got a lot to say about it, and I'll just read through some of the data and get some commentary from you, Ed, because it's an important story. Uh, obviously, this rumor of uh, capital gains tax increase, this is significant. Currently, capital gains taxes at 20% could rise to 39 spot six. Under some circumstances, 43.4% proposed capital gains tax ceiling. But to take that to this story about cities, uh, blue states, uh, look, California, that would add another 13.3%. Live in New York, 11.85%. Live in New York City, another 3.88% on top of the 11.85%. That starts to look pretty near 60% capital gains tax rates for residents of New York City. Yeah, that's uh, that's that's a lot. You know, doubling any tax rate is, uh, honestly, I don't think it's going to fly. No, no one... Uh, you can debate the positives and negatives of uh, of increasing taxes. Uh, I'm probably negative in terms of increasing taxes. Uh, I don't necessarily know if I want to go into why, because you know we talked about taxes, Jack and I, yesterday, and that was a huge debate in the comments. But the thing is, is uh, it's the step change going from 20 to almost 40 percent. That is uh, a massive increase. So I don't really think that it's it's going to happen. I, they, this is interesting. Uh, if you look at the the data, here's what uh, Bloomberg says the proposal does. But he proposes doubling the tax rate to 39.6 for those earning one million dollars or more, according to people who are familiar with the proposal, coupled with the existing surtax on investment income. That means that the federal tax rates could be as high as 43.4%. So the marginal rate 39.6, but add in, you know, the surtax and you get up to 43.4. He also it says this would fulfill Biden's campaign uh pledge to subject capital gains tax to the top marginal income tax rate which is uh 39.6% uh, or are being proposed to increase from 37 to 39.6% for people making $400,000 or more as a household. So it's really, uh, to me, about uh, equating the two together, the 39.6% level and uh, the 39.6% level on um, capital gains. But that's a massive change, I have to say. 
And I think that there's going to be a lot of resistance to that. And just for context of politics aside, uh, if something like this were to go through, in your view, you've been watching these markets for a very long time, thinking about these fiscal issues. What happens to investment? I mean, that's just an incredible distortion uh, in terms of the base effect from where we are today to where the proposal is to take us. Well, I mean, there are two outcomes or two possible outcomes. Outcome number one is the same sort of thing that you get with inflation. Uh, when people talk about inflation, really oftentimes they're talking about a step change. That is, is that you're going from, uh, you know, this level to this level plus five uh, percent. Uh, and then, you know, uh, you go back to the, the previous levels of inflation that you had before. So that's not a big deal. The other possibility is instead of, you know, now we, um, we get take the 16% hit. This is what David Rosenberg said yesterday in his piece, that uh, when you put the corporate tax increase together with the, uh, the capital gains tax, that's a 16% hit. If you, if you take that hit in a market that's overheated, it could potentially be the straw that broke the camel's back, causes people to reassess, and you have some sort of massive uh, sell-off in, in equities. So, right. you know, 16% over, over time or a potential massive sell-off. Those are the two uh, outcomes that I see if, if, if it passes. So it's distinctly negative for equities. Yeah. Jack, any thoughts on that? Well, I, I think uh, for a lot of people approach taxes this way. If someone makes more than me, then they should be taxed higher because they're a plutocrat. And if they make less than me, they should pay uh, more in taxes. You know, they need to learn the value of hard work. So uh, I don't know. I, I don't quite know how to approach it. But in terms of its, its impact on the market, um, I, I saw a report today that increases in long-term capital gains historically have not harmed the returns of the S&P 500. Um, however, I am thinking of that, you know, the huge Trump tax cut, which was on corporations, which, you know, many think, and I think probably is very likely to be one of the reasons that, you know, the stock market just absolutely soared um, before, uh, you know, March of last year. So I think, I think the, you know, the, the, you can um, directly tie the cut in the corporate tax rate to the S&P 500. The question is, if you cut, uh, excuse me, if you raise the capital gains tax, how does that impact the marginal investors' behavior? Are they going to say, oh, I'm actually not going to buy the S&P 500. I'm going to go, go buy bonds, let's say. Well, to me, that doesn't make a ton of sense because the S&P 500 still on a very long-term time view will generate higher returns no matter what your tax rate. Does it incentivize people to post uh, uh, short-term gains if they have uh, you know, a certain reason to? Are people going to you know, con not conspire, but are people going to work with banks and tax advisors so that if they have a huge uh, taxable gain, they can borrow money against that and then sort of, uh, you know, use that as a loss? Are they going to derivative hedge so that they actually can report a loss? I feel like, you know, um, I I've read uh, Matt Levine from Bloomberg, who used to be an equity structurer um, at Goldman Sachs, that a lot of derivative hedges are actually people who uh, want to sell their stock, but they're not allowed to sell their stock. So I think that it's, it's, it's um, I don't know, it's a complicated issue. You know, when Ed and I were on yesterday, uh, we reported that on news of, or not news, but on reports that Biden was going to go through with this, the S&P 500 
uh, plummeted the most in a 10-minute window, right as the news reported. But obviously, markets don't seem to be that worried today because if NASDAQ is up, S&P 500 is up, Russell is up, the Dow, even the Dow is up. So um, yeah, I don't really know what to think, Ash. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. What do you think? You know, let me uh, grab the ball there and yeah. say that I think it's interesting that. It's clear when you look at the proposal that what's happening is it's it's a fairness game. Uh, I mean, there are two aspects to it politically. One is the 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 rate, thirty nine point six on the one side, and then the other side, which was thirty seven uh, for people with incomes of four hundred thousand dollars or more, going to thirty nine point six. So basically, what Biden's going to sell this as is thirty nine point six over here, thirty nine point six percent over here. It's fair. I think that that's a good sell, and I, w- I would agree with that. The, the second uh, political issue is the, the, the level, the rate, 39.6%. That's the real problem, is that's a, lo- a large rate when you add in local taxes, when you add in state taxes, uh, you're looking at a massive tax grab, and a lot of people will blanch as a result of that. Ed, was there a specific term that you had for that? It's the great something, something. <laughs> right. I, I I wrote an article about this just because, you know, yesterday when you and I were talking, we, um, you know, you can talk for three or four minutes about taxes in a very uh, hot political way, but it doesn't really get to the nitty gritty of what you're saying. So I wrote a whole article on credit write downs. It's, uh, it's outside the paywall. And uh, yeah, I use the term the great Biden tax grab. Because I think that's really how people uh, who are against this are going to be thinking about it. Because ultimately, we're talking about increasing spending, and we're also talking about increasing taxes in order to fund that spending. And that's a paradigm that we used to see you know, 30 or 40 years ago. It seems like it's coming back. So when you think about this just from a holistic perspective, what you're seeing now is a completely different world in terms of how we're thinking, not just in terms of, yes, now you have massive deficit spending from Donald Trump, and that's continued under Biden, but it's the same thing that's happening in Europe. The uh, We're now in a world in which fiscal policy is a much more active than it used to be. So I think that uh, it's something that we need to be thinking about in terms of what its impact is both on inflation and also, uh, especially with regard to taxes, on the distribution of income. Yeah. So GBTG, not to be confused with GBTC, another hot topic of conversation. Yeah. Wh- why don't you make that uh, that transition there? Because uh, it's when you mentioned GBTC that I thought about my GB uh, uh, TG. <laughs> Because they have similar uh, monikers. What's what's going on with GBTC? Well, you know, I I think probably the first thing to think about in in this framework is just looking at the broader crypto markets. Uh, obviously, this has not been a great week uh, for crypto. Uh, crypto down uh, right now significantly across the board. Bitcoin. Uh, I'm looking at the numbers uh, off uh, down. Bitcoin trading at 51.140 right now. That's a 17% decline, uh, trailing seven days and about 4% uh, 
uh, on the 24-hour trailing window. Uh, Ethereum uh, down at 2353, uh, down about 2% on the week. Everything generally down. Doge, of course, where we've got a lot of comments, uh, down 21% trailing seven days. Uh, Look, hey, why didn't you start with Doge? I mean, isn't that the new like coin that people care about? Yeah, well, I was going to say, Ash, I don't really follow Bitcoin anymore. I mainly focus most of my intellectual energy on Doge. <laughs> Terrible. Okay, so Doge. Let's talk a little bit about Doge for people uh, who may be following this. And I've given my sort of my thoughts about it, but there's and, and, I, and I saw there's some questions coming into us uh, on the uh, live doc uh, right now about. Oh, yeah, what are they saying? Yeah, so I mean, listen. Here's the deal. Uh, Doge was created like as a joke, right? Like let's let's not lose track of that. The creator of Dogecoin has said it's a meme coin. It's a joke. It was something that we were doing, uh, sort of humorously, tongue in cheek. In addition, uh, one of the main selling points of Bitcoin, which is the coin that it most resembles, uh, is that it is on a deflationary uh, creation schedule. Uh, Dogecoin, exactly the opposite, an inflationary schedule. Look to me, uh, this is a meme. And it's getting it's getting headlines because of the price action. And um, when the reason you're buying something, when the use case for it uh, in the digital asset space is, I believe the price will go up because the price has already gone up, and I'll be able to sell it to someone else for a higher price. To me, that's not a very strong uh, use case for understanding. Yeah, there are so many important, powerful, interesting things that are going on in the space. Why Dogecoin? Because uh, it's a really cute dog and the price has risen dramatically. But with all that said, uh, the reality is, uh, it's almost like kind of like a Say's Law effect here, supply creates demand. When the price action starts moving in a certain direction uh, and it gets a great deal of publicity, there are potentials uh, for network effects. So could Dogecoin uh, be used for something practical? Could someone come in? Uh, could a group uh, decide that Dogecoin has a practical value, uh, that it could be used for something? It's possible, I wouldn't rule it out. Uh, but at this point, you know, you're gambling. Let's call it what it is. Uh, and if you go and do it in Vegas, uh, you get free cocktails and maybe you get uh, free tickets to see Britney Spears if you spend enough money. So uh, you're not you're not a, a backer. You're not pro doze. That's what you're telling me. Look, it's a really hard story to like, right? It's a really hard story to like. Uh, by the way, all of that said, could Dogecoin double in value? Could we be having this conversation next week and Dogecoin is trading at uh, 86 or 87 cents? Absolutely. Anything's possible in this market. Uh, but to me, it starts to look, smell, and taste a lot like gambling. So uh, what's different about Doge in terms of the actual cryptography, or you know, let's call it uh, the, the algorithm, uh, versus uh, Bitcoin? How, how are they separate from one another? <clears throat> I think the, uh, the algorithm is still the same. I think it's SHA-256, but the creation schedule is different. The block uh, structure is different. Uh, it's uh, it's something that is uh, obviously a much lower value uh, coin, so that there's some price bias, which is one of the reasons why people come into it. Uh, we know, as we people who've been in the financial space, uh, that whether something is trading at uh, fifty thousand or fifty cents, uh, obviously the economic result of investing a hundred dollars is the same relative uh, to the total network value or market capitalization. But it seems to be that one of the major factors that's driving people to it is the price bias, price distortion effect. Uh, so I think that's a major factor. And again, to get back to the earlier point, Dogecoin has a really cute dog. Ash, I want to I want to explore and scrutinize your claim that Dogecoin is inherently inflationary, whereas Bitcoin is inherently deflationary. I think it's not so much a question of 
how much of an asset there is, it's how much of that new supply there is relative to the demand. So for example, uh, a you know, failing industrial company that's buying back its own stock, they are actually decreasing the supply of their number of shares, but the stock can still go down because people realize that it's a total dog, uh, pun sort of not intended or intended. Um, but now with the topic of Dogecoin and Bitcoin, obviously Bitcoin is deflationary relative to demand is increasing exponentially and relative to a supply, the growth rate of which is, or the absolute number of coins is decre decreasing exponentially. But it's still a fact that new Bitcoins are mined every day. So in an absolute sense, it is inflationary, even though it is in a sense, in terms of a currency, one of the de most deflationary things that was ever invented. But Dogecoin, I actually think is more similar to uh, Bitcoin than the US dollar in terms of its inflation schedule, because its absolute number of coins or Dogecoins per year, I believe, stays constant at about 5.6 billion. The absolute number of coins now, it's somewhere in the 130 billion. So year over year, as the absolute number of Dogecoins gets larger, that 5 billion will decrease and decrease and decrease. And if you compare that to the MT, you know, M2 excuse me, money supply growth, I think actually that Dogecoin, it has an inflation schedule that is, resembles more closely to Bitcoin than the dollar, which you know it, it rises and falls with economic cycles and, and financial panics and the like. So, uh, you know, what, what do you? What, why am I wrong? All right, Jack, you've done your homework. It's an <laughs> elegant argument. I'm not sure it's the right one. Uh, it's an interesting conversation. Look, first of all, uh, the metaphors between uh, digital assets, particularly digital assets that have inherent value or the perception of inherent value that look like currencies uh, versus equities. I'm not sure it's the right one. Uh, obviously, you're looking at pricing equities on a price-to-earnings ratio. Um, that's not something that exists uh, with the network value of some of these coins. Uh, the reality is that I would separate the supply schedule from the demand component. I think that that's probably muddying the waters a little bit. The reality is that Bitcoin has a schedule. Uh, first of all, both of them are expanding. Uh, the question is, it's about the second derivative. Uh, the total number of coins is rising uh, in both cases. But the rate of creation of new coins on Bitcoin is falling. That's what you talk about when you hear the halvening or the halvening, uh, which is the decrease in the rate of new coins being added. Uh, so uh, that ratio of increase uh, is declining. Uh, and in Dogecoin, there isn't that fixed schedule. Part of what makes Bitcoin Bitcoin, not just in the code, but in the culture, is that everyone knows it has this hard cap, 21 million. Uh, if that were to change, in theory, it could, certainly if you had network agreement theoretically in terms of the of the way that the code uh, base works. But the reality is culturally, what makes Bitcoin Bitcoin is that everyone knows and agrees ahead of time uh, that there is this hard cap. Uh, and I just don't really see the use case right now today uh, for Dogecoin being anything other uh, than a cute puppy meme uh, and also something that you can buy today and hope to flip it tomorrow uh, for a higher price. To me, that's not something that makes me feel really sanguine uh, about the use case for Bitcoin, obviously, really fascinating things happening, uh, not just in the store of value digital gold uh, function, but also in the capacity to do things like money transfers. We recently had Jack Mallers on uh, talking about how Bitcoin could become a conduit for very low cost, near zero cost uh, transfers uh, of uh, for transactional purposes. Lots of interesting stuff happening in Bitcoin for that reason that I, I, just, I just don't see with Doge. Again, I bring this to this, when I, I said to Raoul, I think last week, uh, radical uncertainty means you need radical humility. So there's always the possibility that something could change tomorrow. Uh, but today, it's really hard to see. And again, uh, that notwithstanding, uh, price could double the next time we're having this conversation.
So, well, Ash, I, yeah, I would not at all be surprised. Uh, hey, Jack, let me uh, let me ask you a question that you asked me. Yeah. Uh, it, it's good I have the opportunity to come back at you now. Dogecoin is trading at 24 cents. Uh, you asked me, I think it was trading at 33 on Monday, or, or, or it was Monday when you and I spoke, or perhaps we spoke again on Wednesday when we were talking about it. Uh, long story short, if you had to go long or short, uh, and you can't, uh, you know, you can't just stay neutral, which would you do for Dogecoin and why? So it's so funny you asked me that, Ed, because I was about to ask Ash that. But I'll, <laughs> I will give my answer, and then I'll turn it back. I'll turn the laser eye, the Bitcoin laser eyes, back on Ash. So I would say, my if the third option is a choice, do nothing. That is what I want to do, uh, and that is what I'm doing. What do everyone not, wants. Do not have to a position in Dogecoin. If we have this, you know, gun to my head, long or short, um, you know. So it's funny. I asked this to Jared Dillion. He said short. I asked that to you yesterday. You said short. I would probably go long Dogecoin just because I believe that there is a potential that it gets in that 60, 70 cent range, perhaps even a dollar. Um, so yeah, I, I sort of view it as a call option um, in terms of a long-term bet. Am I, you know, am I bullish? No. Short-term, am I bullish? Not really. But you know, you asked me, long or short, I would have to go long. So now, Ash, let's turn the laser eyes back on you. How about, what do you say? You can't oh. do nothing. Oh, you no, can't be aggressively neutral. Long you can't short. be aggressively neutral. You can't do nothing. <laughs> Actually, I would say after making the bear case, easy question. I go long. Well, yeah. I'll get two shorts and two longs. Two reasons. Uh, one, because I think that this this the the mania could still have room to run. Uh, and two, just the mechanical factor of I would prefer not to have to uh, post uh, collateral and leverage a position and go short uh, on a margin account on something. So. Uh, but it's, I think it's pretty easy to go along. Well, you know, yeah. since we're talking about this, I almost feel like we should take a bet. And it reminds me of a bet that I know that uh, our colleagues, uh, Travis Kimmel and uh, Tyler Neville, were making about the dollar. Uh, they were talking about uh, there was a push for the dollar to go higher. That's when rates were going higher. And at the time, I think we were around 93 on the on DXY, dollar index. Now... Uh, they made the bet, you know, uh, about 92, I believe it was. Where is it going to be? Uh, is it going to go below or above 92 in a week's time? And here we are today. And what's the dollar index, Ash? It's uh, around 91. There you go. So a collapse in the U.S. dollar. Um, what do you what do you make of the collapse in the U.S. dollar? What's going on there? Uh, that uh, is causing the U.S. dollar to start to look weak once again? I think it's uh, easy cop-out answer is the fall in real yields. Um, uh, inflation break-evens have continued to rise as we've seen you know, commodity inflation like, like lumber and oil, um, but yields have sort of trapped in a range. They sold off today, yields, yields ro rose and bond yields sold off. But over the past month, bonds have been pretty flat, if not actually declining. So that combination of flat to down yields with rising inflation break-evens, and what you get, you get falling real yields in terms of the actual purchasing power of what you can get with a U.S. bond. And so when that happens, foreign capital or you know, or capital period um, says, hey, I'd rather have put my money somewhere else. You know, I mean, one key reason why we had that huge surge in the dollar. Um, over the, the past few months has been that just the yield differential between uh, you know, um, U.S. Treasuries and German boons and, and 
uh, other you know, things that have negative yields just absolutely exploded. So people would say, why would I get a negative yield um, when I can go the dollar? But you, know, you kind of had a reversal on that. Also, simple answer uh, too, which I think is also an effect, high base effect, right? We saw this massive flight to quality uh, in March of 2020. Uh, it's obviously sold off below the level that it was trading at uh, prior. For example, 18 and 19 were below those levels now. 90 spot 83 apparently last trade. Um, but I think some of it probably also the roll off mean reversion uh, high base effect. Yeah. yeah. What do you, and, you know, going to your relative value uh, play there, Jack, I think it's interesting if you look at, I'm looking at two charts now. I'm looking at the German 10 year and also the Swiss 10 year over the last three months. And if you look at that, what you see is, uh, you know, the least negative for months uh, for both of those rates. So on a relative basis, the US doesn't look quite as interesting as it has done uh, uh, for quite some time. And the the I'm going to the German 10-year. It's been at least a year since the German 10-year was at the level that it is today. I have to go back here. Let me take a look to 2019 in order to get uh, the German 10-year at a higher rate than a still minus 0.25 percent. Uh, yeah, and I think also. Um, sort of very bullish America because America has Google and Facebook and technology and very business friendly regulation. Um, that has been the narrative for why U.S. assets have overperformed over the past 40 years. But just based on uh, Jason Buck's conversation with Meb Faber, that actually doesn't really pass the smell test if you go be up before 1980, um, you know, 1940, 1950, 1960, 1970. Those were years where the U.S. stock market actually performed, uh, you know, somewhat not so well against its its competitors because everyone was uh, oh it's it's all about Argentina it's all about this it's all about that um, so the sort of U.S. overperformance which you know everyone accepts perhaps our most venerated and you know very very um, people at that advanced age like above eighty uh, you know most people have been living in a world where U.S. assets outperform and that's not necessarily historical. Hmm. Yeah, very interesting. Speaking. So, of Ash, I was going to say, do you have any questions for us uh, from uh, people that you think uh, now's the time to talk about? That's exactly where I was going, Ed. And uh, the first question comes to us uh, from Adrian. Uh, can you guys comment on this week's hawkish comments by the Bank of Canada and what it might signal uh, for go-forward central bank policy for other developed economies? For those who aren't watching this story, uh, Bank of Canada came out and warned on inflation yesterday. Curious, Ed, uh, that sounds like the kind of thing that you'd be watching. Any thoughts? Yeah, uh, my uh, general view is that uh, it's a canary in the coal mine. Uh, the, you know, central banks, they move in packs, and it gives yeah. uh, cover to other central banks if they want to, to start to move in that direction. Uh, they can take a look, see how it develops, both in terms of the real economy and in terms of the uh, financial economy, but we know that Canada uh, hasn't vaccinated very well. Uh, there's a lockdown right now in Ontario. Uh, and so the Bank of Canada has been taking action preemptively, if you will, uh, from a, a monetary policy perspective. It's, it, that has nothing to do with their wanting to uh, continue accommodation while because of the economy. Uh, their economy is arguably worse off right now than the United States. So to me, that gives cover 
uh, to the ECB. It gives cover to the United States. It gives cover to other major um, uh, central banks. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think I also saw Macklem not just talking about inflation, but you know, tapering asset purchases. And I didn't read the minutes or anything, but I was reading Jared Dillian's uh, newsletter today, the Daily Dirt Nap, where he covered it. it and you know, the U.S. dollar relative to the Canadian dollar, it's at uh, 125. It's it's backed off its peak of 1.45 just after, um, uh, you know, the, the huge sell-off of March last year. And Jared's saying, hey, it makes a lot more sense for it to be at 1.45, 1.65 because Canada is has a lot of problems, um, you know, with 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 debt, uh, with current accounts balances, with growth. You know, they have a property bubble that is many, many more times or you know, is much more uh, extreme than the sort of surge in U.S. housing that we've seen in the in stateside. Um, so, yeah, I think I think that's a great question. Something definitely something to keep your eye on. And, um, you know, uh, Jared notes that FX traders call U.S. CAD the truth. It's called the truth trade because it has the highest correlation to the macro environment. So, um, yeah, something to something to keep my eye on. You're a podcast listener and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. It's really a steep sell off, isn't it, Down? I mean, it's just that you look at that chart uh, for, the, for the month of April and it's just, it's just straight down. One spot four, basically down to the last trade where we are right now, uh, one and a quarter dollar CAD. Yeah, I, I find that very interesting. It's definitely something to keep an eye on because you think about it from a fundamental perspective. When the economy in Canada is not really gangbusters, what does that mean if the if the currency is going up at that rate? It does suggest potentially that people believe the Fed now, that they believe that the Fed is going to continue to be uh, dovish, that uh, relative speaking, you know, interest rates are going to be higher in other countries, Germany, Switzerland, Canada, you name it, that they're going to be tightening before the U.S. Maybe that's the signal that we, we should be taking away from this. Hey, Ash, I, I want to hear uh, the other questions that our audience has for us, but I also feel like there are two topics which we haven't yet discussed. One is the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust, and the other is toilet paper. So you're the host, do with what you weigh, but I just want to let you know that <laughs> we, got, we got two things on the, on the, on the tray. Um, you know, listen, I'll give the, and I would add one more to that as well, but I would add, uh, you know, I, I'm not uh, sure exactly what's happening on the toilet paper trade, but I can speak to GBTC. Uh, this is the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust uh, that you alluded to right now, trading at a steep discount to net asset value. Uh, this is a closed-ended fund, uh, which means the shares are not redeemable, so you can have these uh, sort of imbalances of the price relative to net asset value. Historically, this has traded uh, at a premium to net asset value, uh, but now it's trading at basically 19 or so percent below net asset value. It's really taken a walloping uh, in dollar terms and relative terms uh, to the underlying asset. Um, you know, this is an interesting question. Uh, I believe uh, that uh, Digital Currency Group has said that they're going to, uh, the move is going to be to push this into an ETF uh, when those are reaching the clearance for the regulatory hurdles. Uh, but for right now, obviously, it's taken a hit. We were talking about this a little bit offline. Why would people want to own GBTC? The answer historically uh, was if you're an institutional uh, client and you were constrained because of your investment charter from directly investing in Bitcoin, uh, it was a way that you could get the exposure. Uh, and hey, the premium was nice too. 
Uh, obviously, that is now reversed. Uh, so the story is a little bit different. Well, uh, sorry, you, you said the premium is nice too, but that actually means they paid a premium. So they they were paying a lot more for Bitcoin than they got. Now, if you right. actually believe that one GBTC, um, you know, what one Bitcoin that GBTC owns is worth one Bitcoin in the real world, this is the mother of all arbitrage trades. If you if sure. you believe that, yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, if you got in early and you saw the price oh, rise oh, right. relative yeah, yeah. to the price, you experienced that capital appreciation along with it, and that was a great trade. Uh, but now, obviously, that's reversed. But again, the question can be: Listen, this is the challenge with net asset value. You're talking about uh, the fact that you're getting. Uh, more Bitcoin for the dollar, um, but that's great uh, as long as it continues uh, to, if you believe in mean reversion, if you think that it could potentially continue to deteriorate on a relative basis, uh, you can get whacked on that trade. And people who are a lot smarter than I am, I can assure you, have made similar misjudgments in the past uh, with trying to trade things uh, that were basically, um, you know, reversion plays uh, against uh, an asset that they believed would converge. Yeah, I, I think a comparison is you can think that you know the volatility is going to explode, so you buy something like VXX, um, and volatility does it, it explode, but you actually don't make as much money as you would think because you have to pay a lot in roll yield, and a lot of the monthly cost of the VIX doesn't actually come from the VIX. Excuse me, from the VXX doesn't actually come from the VIX declining, but so much it's is from the you know you have to pay the the, the roll, roll yield. So hey Jack, uh, speaking of negative roll yield, let's talk toilet paper. Okay, okay, okay. That is a, is a great uh, connection. So today, um, a lot of big companies reported their earnings. American Express, Kimberly Clark, and it's that latter one that I've got my on. They produce you know all sorts of wipes face masks, tissue paper, and yes, um, toilet paper. So uh, people at home, you might have remembered that when the pandemic first started, there, were, uh, there was an absolute bubble in toilet paper. Let's put, let's put it like that. There was a boom in toilet paper. I remember I saw some guy try and walk into a Dwayne Reed, and he had a, a basket. And he had put about 30 rolls of toilet paper in that basket. And he tried to check out. Um, and the cashier said, excuse me, sir, actually, uh, you, you were not allowed to buy more than one roll. So that was the world that we're in uh, uh, about a year ago. And you can actually see it in the numbers of Kimberly Clark's uh, consumer tissue segment, which is a segment of their business. Consumer tissue, um, you know, beating tissues, Kleenex, but also toilet paper. Um, so those uh, you know, year over year growth, um, they posted about gains of 15%, which is quite eye popping. Um, however, now that we're in March and everyone is saying, oh, actually, we're not going to be in this lockdown forever. The reopening is already happening, if not you know, on the horizon. And um, so they reported their earnings today, and their revenue was down 12% in the consumer tissue um, sales. So there's a, a Bloomberg reporter who wrote an article called Down the Tube. Um, so uh, I think it kind of marks a, a big, uh, a serious point in the road of how we are in COVID that you know, there's no longer a bubble in toilet paper. It's, it's over. Yeah, you know, listen, I think this is a really important point. And the one uh, story that I really wanted to add uh, was the story about what's happening with COVID. We were talking about this earlier. I think this is the single most important story uh, in the world in terms of the impact to the real global economy. Uh, obviously, there are some very difficult uh, things that are happening right now uh, in India, where we see the cases absolutely exploding, setting new records every day. Uh, in Brazil, uh, where we see young people, people as young in their 20s and 30s, dying of COVID uh, for, for uh, reasons that experts cannot fully explain. This is something that I'd heard about anecdotally from people who had friends in Brazil uh, telling these terrible tales of people in their 30s dying. 
uh, and now the statistical data seems to bail it out. Uh, bear it out. It's a terrible, terrible story, and it reminds me of this bias uh, that we have, which is here in the state of New York. Uh, we've had a, a relative success in vaccination. Uh, people have been doing the right thing in terms of wearing masks and social distancing. You look at the numbers. Uh, clearly, the data is going down uh, in terms of the positivity rate, hospitalization rate, everything in New York on a relative basis, day over day, week over week, looking quite good, quite optimistic. I think there was a rumor uh, about Bill de Blasio potentially removing the mask requirements for outdoor use. All of these very positive signs, but the world is an incredibly heterogeneous place. That is the thing that we've learned with COVID, that you see these hotspots, these flare-ups, uh, terrible, terrible suffering in places like India, places like Brazil, uh, and the impact to the global economy, the impact to supply chains, emerging markets, currency exchange rates, still very much an open question. And if you want to throw out the nightmare scenario, uh, by no means is this a prediction. But the risk is if you have these very dense super clusters uh, of spread of the disease, the potential uh, for mutation that can break through the existing vaccines, uh, while by no means a certainty, obviously a threat, a significant risk. I was reading an article in the Wall Street Journal that used the phrase double mutant strain. That sounds hellishly scary. Uh, there's some preliminary reports coming out of Israel that the B spot one spot three five one South Africa virus has the capacity to break through the Pfizer vaccine. Some very scary things that are happening in the world. I wouldn't be doing an end zone dance just yet uh, in terms of the global economy and the impacts. And to me, that's the single most important story. Although it's not being priced into U.S. equity markets, uh, so there is that disconnect that we've spoken about uh, throughout this entire crisis. Yeah, everything that we're we're doing right now, everything that we're talking about is, is uh, under the assumption that we're just all going to get vaccinated up. We're going to reach a point where uh, COVID is not really that big a problem. Uh, that's what we want, and that's what we're assuming. But this whole concept, let's just imagine that uh, what you just said happens. That is, is that there's some uh, a mutant uh, evading, uh, there's a uh, antibody evading mutant uh, of COVID-19. And it sets back the vaccination effort and and so forth. Let's say six months, nine months. I mean, that would be devastating to the timetable that people are thinking about. Suddenly, it throws everything up in the air. I would consider that a you know a a, a known unknown. And let's just hope that we don't go there because uh, there are a lot of potential uh, negative outcomes from that. Yeah, I'd say um, definitely. You know. A, a lot of what we talk about here on the REDB is U.S. focused, just because that's where we happen to live. Other than Ral, who lives in the Cayman Islands, um, but you know our, our audit, Real Vision audience really is global. We have a lot of subscribers in Europe, in the U.K. We have subscribers in China, in India, in Brazil, in the places that are affected. So yeah, you know, if you're watching now, um, our, our hearts go out to you. And um, yeah, um, I would say that in terms of India, it's strange. It's it, actually not strange. It's exhibiting, uh, in terms of the stock market, the same phenomenon as we saw in the U.S., whereas cases surge to unseen levels, it, that doesn't perturb the, the Indian stock market at all, if you look at something like um, um, the Sensex. I will say, uh, Ash and Ed, it's, it's my view, and this is just my own view, that in the U.S., uh, the reopening is something of a foregone conclusion. And I, I don't think that um, you know we're going to go back to sort of that hellish scenario of a lockdown. It really would take a double mutant strain that is, you know, causing a lot of deaths for people who even have been vaccinated 
I think, for that to happen. And that obviously is a hellish nightmare scenario. Um, in terms of vaccinations, that the, you know, uh, Ed, you and I went over some charts yesterday of how if you are vaccinated, you have a much light, lower chance of being infected and how we're actually seeing that in the economic data of different age cohorts. Um, what was the other thing I was going to say? Oh, uh, that in the, the, U, in the U.S., um, excuse me, uh, you have you know, all these people who are kind of very willing to and able to, to, to go out and that's baked into their expectations. So they're kind of, uh, you know, they're, they're ready for the roaring 20s. So I think the people of, in the U.S. who are ready, 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 willing and able for the roaring 20s is uh, growing day by day. I did see an ominous chart of people in the U.S. who actually say that they would not get vaccinated. That actually went up from 18% a few months ago to somewhere in the 40%. I believe that is of people who already haven't been vaccinated. So there's kind of a statistical effect of people who haven't been vaccinated are the ones who don't want to get vaccinated. Um, but yeah, that's something I have my eye on. But I don't know. What do you guys think? Well, yeah, my my biggest reaction is is that if uh, lockdowns are definitely, I agree with you 100%, Jack, that lockdowns are out. If we lock down again, uh, people will not, Basically, you know, there won't be compliance. You will not get people to comply. Uh, we've gone through this a whole year. COVID fatigue is is severe, and yeah. it, it just wouldn't work. So it's the vaccines are bust at this point. Lockdowns are out. That's my personal view as well. Yeah, I think so too. And look, people are really suffering. The mental health impact of this on on people is real. It is a difficult thing uh, for people to go through. And so, um, you know, when we talk about COVID fatigue, it is a real thing and it has a real impact. You know, the other thing that I was thinking was we talked about the story is one of the things that I've found personally uh, most irritating about the way that this has been covered, uh, the story has been covered by the chatter class, by the media, uh, is just the degree of politicization and finding stories and making stories up where they don't exist and overfitting data. I remember uh, going back, whatever it was, uh, 10 months or so, uh, we heard these stories uh, about uh, comparing Germany to the United States. And the narrative, of course, was Donald Trump is bad. Uh, and uh, and uh, obviously, Madame Merkel is very good because she has a background in the sciences and look at what she's going to do. And then we saw a, a catastrophic failure in Europe in general, uh, and in Germany in particular, in the vaccine rollout. And I remember not that long ago hearing stories about India uh, saying, well, you know, the thing about India is there's a higher presence of certain pathogens. This is why people aren't getting ill at the same rate as Brazil. I mean, if you go back two weeks, you'll find these stories, uh, very serious stories written by very serious publications comparing India favorably uh, to Brazil in terms, of, uh, in terms of positivity rates. All that's reversed. It seems like this is just a terrible, terrible disease that's been really gripping the entire world. The stories of of this country versus that country, it's been it's been a really uh, you know challenging thing to try and put uh, very specific kind of uh, frameworks of causality around. The one thing that seems to be happening right now uh, that seems pretty clear a real effect is the vaccine is clearly helping, uh, and we hope that continues, and we hope that uh, people continue to stay safe and to uh, and to use uh, reasonable precautions. And we hope that we don't have to go into lockdowns. And, and Jack, to, to share your sentiments to people who are around the world who are in those places who are affected. This is also not just an economic story. It's a terrible, terrible human story. Uh, and obviously, uh, our hearts and thoughts are with the people who are suffering from this terrible disease right now. Ash, you know, one thing that you said that caught my eye was when you talked about you can't really uh, say 
one way or the other who's doing better than anyone else, because at any one time, uh, bad things could happen in one place or another. The only countries that seem to be immune, and I'm not thinking about the Asian countries in general, because there are some flare-ups there, here and there, seem to be, at this point in time, Australia and New Zealand. There, th this whole thing about basically uh, closing the borders, it, it seems to be working for them. Uh, are we, am I premature in saying that, uh, you know, uh, they've, they've done a good job? I mean, maybe we just have to wait until they do the vaccine rollout and then they open up to uh, other countries to see whether or not that approach actually works. Yeah, I mean, New Zealand certainly seems to be uh, doing a very good job. It, it's a relatively small country, I should say. It's actually a very small country. It's less than 5 million people. Uh, as the statistic is often cited, there are literally more sheep uh, than humans. It is an island uh, country, or it's actually a series of islands in the South Pacific. Uh, very easy to control the borders. Um, and um, it seems as though that that has been an exception. Uh, but look, you know, it's fewer people than there are here in New York City. Uh, and they don't have Pennsylvania, Connecticut, and New Jersey on their borders and Massachusetts. So look, um, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's something that is clearly, uh, you know, kind of the, the demography is destiny, geography is destiny argument here. Uh, and um, and uh, it's, it's just a significantly uh, less uh, challenging situation when you're a small island uh, nation in the South Pacific. Ash, as, we, as we approach a close, are there any other questions, a final question from the audience? You know, interestingly enough, we've covered many of the questions before, lots of questions about Doge, lots of questions about crypto. Um, but I will throw this one out. Uh, this is a question that's addressed directly to Ed, but I think it's an interesting question uh, for all of us to, to uh, perhaps weigh in on. The question comes to us from John, and the question is, does Ed think macro is dead? Mm -hmm. Wow, that's a good question. No, I don't think macro is dead. I don't even think that the... Um... I don't even think that the insolvency uh, uh, phase is dead. Honestly, I think it's just like with the virus. It's too early to call because my macro view at this point, and, and no pun intended, is that we face the most important known unknown, and that is is what consumer behavior will be uh, when we have the the full full reopening, not just in the United States, but in Europe and Japan in uh, Asia, in Latin America, in Africa. You know, when, when we're back to uh, normal, so to speak, what, what's going to be different at that point in time? Because, you know, at, things at the margin matter. If at the margin there's a difference of 10%, uh, that could be uh, death for certain industries. It could be death for certain companies in certain industries. If, you know... 20% of your business traffic uh, dies up and that's where you get your biggest margin from, that could be the end of your business. So the jury's still out on what this cycle looks like. So I don't think that macro's dead at all. Mr. Farley, is macro dead? I think when Rao says macro is dead, I think he's referring to his style the Stanley Druckenmiller style, the George Soros style of, you know, shorting the pound, breaking the Bank of England, making those extremely long volatility bets that you don't have to put that much down. But if it pays off, you're going to feel like a god, to use a term that Ralph has used um, before. I think that style um, could be dead or dying. 
because central banks have suppressed volatility to such uh, an extreme. Not that, you know, it's, it's, I don't think it's necessarily new that they've suppressed volatility. I just think they've uh, taken it to another level. So I think Ralph could, yeah, yeah, I think that that macro could be dead. But that, that doesn't mean that macro as a whole is dead. Instead of buying long volatility uh, puts on the, excuse me, instead of buying calls on the DXY, you should be selling calls on the DXY. You know, for every single trade, there's an opposite side, side of the trade that you should do. So if one side of the trade is dead, you should take the, the other side. Um, I think that Raul ha does have a lot of interesting thoughts about the exponential age, and that's been something that I've been thinking about uh, over, the, over the past week. And it's something that in the coming months at Real Vision, we are going to explore what are trends that are exponential, that are not mean reverting, that are not cyclical. Um, you know, uh, obviously, one of them, um, Ash, that, that you believe and many believe is, is crypto. But I mean, you can sort of see them everywhere. If you look at something like Kimberly Clark, that stock was down a lot because of this whole toilet paper drama, um, and it, it did not have a great quarter. But if you just look at the chart from 1990 to now, it's an exponential trend. So I think in 2030, will Kimberly Clark be higher than it was today or it was yesterday? Yes. So I, um, short answer, no, I don't think Macro's dead. Um, here's my answer. It's like the death of a king. Macro is dead. Long live macro. I think that uh, it's this transition, the uh, old world uh, being reborn in, in a more digital context. You know, I think that Raul has some really incredible insights into this. Uh, macro is dead is often a phrase that's used uh, in, co in contradistinction from the digital asset space, from the crypto asset space. Uh, my feeling, and I think Raul's feeling as well, and he's spoken very eloquently to this point, is what we're seeing is a union, a convergence of macro and digital assets. We're seeing, uh, to some extent, uh, digital assets being brought into the traditional system uh, in, in terms of the legal regulatory compliance frameworks. And then we're also seeing um, digital assets rewriting some of the old rules. Uh, so macro is dead, long live macro. I think macro, uh, in some context, will always be here. It's a little bit of an evolution. I'm reminded, perhaps, of uh, the uh, great uh, Francis Fukuyama's book in 1992, uh, The End of History. Uh, history did not end. It just transmogrified into something else. Uh, so I think that uh, while the old rules of the game are being replaced by new rules, I don't think uh, I don't think that macro is dead because whatever sort of comes, it's almost like a a, a self fulfilling prophecy um, or a, an identity property. Whatever comes in the wake of macro will be the new macro, and I think that uh, that that's what we're going to be talking about here on Real Vision and Real Vision Crypto. And it's an incredibly exciting time. Very interesting stuff. Um, I do think Francis Fukuyama, his statement that history. Uh, history is over, the end of history. I think that's not very well respected now based on you know, <laughs> things like 2016 elections, the rise of populism. So I think history was not dead in, in that case. But actually, you, know, you do make uh, very interesting points. I think with something like Bitcoin, I do view that as macro because I think the macro people who got into Bitcoin, they're like, okay, the central bank balance sheet is exploding. There's only 21 million. It's a pretty simple trade. I think that as people are getting more into Ethereum and I don't know, you know other altcoins, I'm not going to name them, um, that is really about the technology and that is not necessarily about central bank balance sheet. But I think there is there is a bridge and that I think that bridge is, is kind of Bitcoin. So I think they yeah. uh, I think macro is not dead, but they the crypto is definitely close to macro, I would say. Because we've done it once again, we completely yeah. blown through. We're like, eh, we'll keep this at like 35 to 40 minutes. Uh, we're in over an hour here. A great conversation uh, with both of you. Always enjoy these conversations. Ed, Jack, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much.
You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.